Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Oh, good. So what does the ideal church look like? Well, it depends what you're looking for. If you're planning a wedding, it's very often a matter of visual appeal. How will it look in the photos? Does the church have a tall romantic spire? Does it have a grand entrance, a beautiful churchyard? For diocesan authorities facing the same question, it's a different answer. It could be a matter of numbers. Is the church growing or in decline? Can it pay its own bills or will it need propping up? No doubt each one of us, if we've given it any thought, would have our own opinions on what a good church should look like, what a good church should be. Should it be warm and welcoming, have comfy seats, a lively worship group, something interesting for the kids? Should it serve proper coffee to help us all wake up on a Sunday morning? Heck, I'd like to put in a bid for installing a roller disco and a wine bar while we're at it. For many, many years, Christians have pointed to today's reading as the definitive answer to that question of what the ideal church should look like. The passage we've just heard from in Acts gives us an insight into the very, very early days of the Christian movement. So early, in fact, that the word church couldn't really be applied to it in the same way we use it today. What we're looking at here is a movement within the Jewish faith. Christianity has yet to become a separate religion, and these guys are still worshipping in the temple. As far as they're concerned, the life they've discovered in Jesus Christ is entirely consistent with the God that they've encountered through their Jewish faith. But that's not to say nothing has changed. In fact, for the people we read about today, everything has changed. Because now they've heard about Jesus, about the God who loves them so much that he would die to give them a future. And what do they do in response to this life-shattering, astonishing revelation? They get baptised. Through water and prayer, they acknowledge God's tremendous gift and respond by committing themselves to God and to one another in fellowship. We're told that in doing so, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, blessing, leading and guiding them. And they form a community, a community of the baptised. The words we've just heard Helen read to us give us a sense of what the very early days of that community were like. And no wonder so many Christians point to this as the prototype for what the church is supposed to look like. It sounds completely utopian. Miraculous signs were being performed. There was absolute equality. Everyone shared what they had so that no one had to go without. Nobody's needs were ignored or deemed less important than anyone else's. The early Christians were grateful for what they had, but they were generous with it too. And they spent much time in each other's company, eating, learning and worshipping together. And not only did it all seem very positive and jolly for those who were part of the community, we're told that it was a very attractive state of affairs to those outside too. We hear that the believers enjoyed the goodwill of all the people and that day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. How brilliant, how perfect does that all sound? And how far removed 
from the reality that so many people experience when they actually walk into churches across Britain today. It gives me some comfort and probably makes me a very bad person indeed to know that the situation described to us this morning didn't actually last all that long. Less than three chapters later in chapter 5 of Acts, we already find the community in a dispute about property. And Paul's letters to the Romans and the Corinthians make it painfully clear that relationships in the early church were not always as harmonious as today's reading suggests. So we need to be very careful indeed that we don't take this reading as an example of what things were typically like in the good old days of the early church. We need to take off our rose-tinted specks and introduce a bit of honesty. Because let's face it, wherever there are human beings, there is the potential for selfishness, conflict and sin. And it's a hard truth to take, but we have to face up to the reality that sometimes when people engage with church, and I'm not just talking about our church here today, I'm talking about all churches, sometimes people just don't encounter the generosity and love we read of in today's scripture. Instead, they meet with prejudice, exclusion, disinterest or self-absorption. Or perhaps they encounter a world that is just too strange, too alien from their own experience to make any sense at all, let alone be attractive enough to consider joining. And when that's the case, what they have encountered is not of God. This is something we need to recognise and for which we should repent. So what do we do? with the apparent perfect example of community that we find in today's reading. It's a nice idea, but surely it's ultimately doomed to failure. Should we just chuck it away? Dispense with the fantasy, because frankly it seems impossible. Or should we take another approach, slog our guts out even harder, trying to to get there, trying to make it, beating ourselves up with guilt every time we fail to meet this insane standard? Well, if Jesus teaches us anything, it's that God is not in the business of guilt, even though we so often seem obsessed by it. But neither is God a quitter. What parent, for example, would advise their child to stop studying for GCSE maths because he or she might not get an A in that subject? So perhaps what we need is a change in perspective. I'd like to suggest that what we read today from the book of Acts is neither what God expects nor what he demands of us. In fact, it's not actually about us and about what we can achieve, though being human we have a tendency to always jump to that conclusion. In fact, what we have here is about what is possible when Jesus is at the centre of a community. So perhaps we need to stop navel-gazing, cut out the self-obsession and lift our eyes to heaven instead. Instead of worrying about what the perfect church might look like, perhaps we should ask what the kingdom of God looks like. And the Bible's given us some clues about this. Well, the kingdom of God is a place where everyone's needs are met. Where no one ever, ever, ever has to go hungry where there are no second-class citizens. 
It's a place where people can laugh and eat and learn and grow together in good relationship with one another. Where hospitality is given and received. Where people's gratitude for what they've received from God overflows into generosity towards others. Think God doesn't care about our relationships? Think God doesn't care about our priorities? Think again. And if God cares about it, surely so should we. If this is God's priority, a place where everyone has their needs met, a place where generosity is the natural impulse, it should be ours too. God doesn't ask or expect us to be perfect, but I reckon he'd quite like us to show up and give a damn. And maybe if we do that, if we show up, if we say, God, I want your priorities to be my priorities, Maybe God will do the rest. Because sometimes it may feel impossible to get anywhere near to being the people in the community God wants us to be. But you know what? We believe in the impossible God. The divine creator who was also a human being. A God who died and then lived instead of the other way around. Most of us are here and come here every Sunday because we actually believe this stuff. What a difference it would make to our church and our world if we, be- if we behaved more like that was the case. This is not about what we're capable of doing under our own steam. It's about what God is capable of bringing into being through us if we're willing to make ourselves available to him. So instead of tying ourselves in knots over what we need to look like as a church, I want to suggest a simpler place to start. And that can be found in the book of 1 John, chapter 4. I think John sums up the challenge that we have before us in today's reading beautifully when he uses these words. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So, beloved, let us love. Simple as that. As people who know that we are loved and cherished by a generous God, let us likewise seek to show love to those we meet, both within these walls and outside them. This is what was going on in the early church that meant that they shared what they had and that they cared for one another. Love was at the centre. Love is what made that possible, no matter how long it lasted. Love and trusting in the impossible God, who can do so much more than we could ever dream or imagine. So surely, friends, we cannot ignore that challenge. But we embark on it, knowing that God is not looking over our shoulders, marking us on how well we perform whether we match up to that incredible standard that even they could not sustain. We embark on it in the knowledge that God is travelling with us and is our partner in all things. So let's pray.
Lord, you have loved us much. We are a rich people. Make us generous with your gifts. Give us grateful, joyful, generous hearts that overflow. And remove from us, Lord, that guilt that says, you're not doing it right. You're failing. You'll never make it. Father, travel with us. Be our partners in crime. And help us to bless all those we meet. Amen.